they're good questions. Let me see if I can answer uh, some of them. My Kathy told me that I almost certainly got one of the answers wrong last night because I didn't understand the question, and I'm sure she is correct. Uh, one of the questions was about why is it hard for us to please God? And I, uh, on, in hindsight, I think what the person meant is why is it that I still struggle with sin? Ah, uh, thank you, brother. Well done. Thank you. Yeah, why is it that I still struggle with sin? Uh, the answer is you always will this side of glory until you go to be with the Lord or until he returns. But that struggle is a sign of life. Galatians chapter 5 says the flesh, the old nature, struggles with the spirit. And you, you crucify the flesh, try and kill it, but it, it, you don't ever quite kill it. It is still a struggle. But that very struggle is a sign of life. You know, a dead dog just floats with the stream. Okay, uh, when you're alive, you, you swim against it. That's um, that's probably a better answer. Okay, here's a question. Pardon me if I got it wrong. Um, geez, Singapore people are polite compared to Sydney people. Uh, you said um, something like Christians are not told to drive out demons, but to pray. Various passages in the Bible, e.g., Mark Mark 6:13 or Matthew 10:8, give examples of the disciples driving out demons. Is it especially for them only? Well, that's what I've said. I've said Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and the apostles, do certain things that we're not told to do and we don't expect to do. If you've got your Bibles, just have a quick look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. See, I think people are selective. Oh, we'll drive out demons. Yeah, what's... Um, when the disciples are sent out, they're sent out for a number of different things. For example, they're told, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. But people today, very few people today, work only in gospel work in Israel. There are some, but very few. They're told, don't take a spare bag, don't take money, travel really light. Uh, that's not followed often either. And the other one, I think, to notice particularly, Matthew chapter 10, verse 13, is the one that was quoted in the question. No, sorry, um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, I'm sorry. They're told, heal the sick, raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. If we're going to drive out demons, let's raise the dead. That would get some people interested, wouldn't it? Uh, you see, no, it's about, it's about Jesus and his disciples, the, the apostles, are foundational in what they do, and the normal Christian experience is seen in what the epistles, what the letters say to the churches. Um, okay, next question. Ezekiel 28, verses 13 to 17, there are references there um, that do not seem to refer to a mere man. E.g., verse 13, you were in Eden. Verse 14, you were anointed as a guardian cherub. How do we explain these if they're just references to a king and not to Satan? Uh, I'm not saying it's definitely not Satan. I'm just saying you can't be sure. Or that's what I think. Anyway, you can't be sure. It's poetic language. There are psalms that talk about the trees of the field clapping their hands. Okay? There are psalms that describe men as lions in the way they behave. I think it's poetry, although it could be kind of an illusion using what happened to Satan to, as an illusion to what will happen to these kings. I'm just saying you can't be sure. That's, that's my point. Um, now, this is a good question. Regarding being quick to forgive one another, 
because I was speaking that last night about Paul saying, "Be quick to forgive," because he's aware of the devil's schemes. Regarding being quick to one another, uh, quick to forgive one another, could you please elaborate what forgiveness means practically? Okay, I'll try and explain. Thought a lot about it. I think this is right. When someone sins against you, they are in your debt. The Bible describes uh, sin uh, between us and God as doing wrong, but also forgive us our debts as we forgive other people their debts. Or if someone does the wrong thing to you, you also have a moral right, in a way, to hurt them back. You have damaged me, I have some right to hurt you back. Forgiveness is saying, I will not hurt you back. I will not injure you in return. And what that means is that the person doing the forgiving has to absorb the wrong. Forgiveness always costs the one who forgives, doesn't it? You know, someone does the wrong thing to you and you take a deep breath and you think, no, I'm going to forgive them. It, what is it? it? It costs. God, we have offended God. God says that he will forgive us and yet God's justice means the penalty must be paid. What does it cost God to forgive us? The life of his son. Okay. Next question then. Um, do you forgive someone who does not repent? I used to think that. Luke 17, uh, 1 to 3, um, uh, if your brother sins, uh, repent. If he comes back seven times in a day uh, and repents, forgive him seven times. I used to think, ah, that's about repentance. No, I think Jesus is emphasising just keep on forgiving, keep on forgiving. Do we insist on someone repenting? Well, uh, we're told in Ephesians to forgive the way God forgave us and even our repentance is the gift of God. I think Romans 12 is a relevant passage here. If you read Romans 12, what he says is don't hold vengeance yourself, let it go. In Australia we say let it go through to the keeper, like when the ball comes through, just let it go, leave it through to God. And says, leave room for God. He will bring justice. God will bring vengeance. You let it go. So I think what the Christians would call on to say is, oh, you have injured me, but I will not hurt you back. I will leave that with God. I will leave it to him. He's the one who can be right. Because if you carry around a grudge, if you carry around hatred or unforgiveness, it poisons you. It turns you bitter, as the Bible says. The next question is a good one. If a person has broken your trust, does forgiving them mean that you trust the person again? Not necessarily. Forgiveness does not mean no consequences. If someone has broken trust, they need to earn that trust again. You may decide, I will not punish you back, but it does mean you have to be wise and you will not trust them. I'll give you an example. I know nothing about the finances here. Uh, if you have a treasurer here at ARPC, okay. Oh, and, sorry, in the Anglican Church, we end up electing someone to be treasurer. It's a pretty dumb way to do it, but that's how we do it. Okay? We elect someone to be treasurer. If after a few years, someone in one of our churches who was treasurer um, got caught fiddling the books, the church may forgive them. They'd still have to, you know, they may have to go to jail because it's a crime, but the church may forgive them and not punish them as a church. But the consequence of that is we wouldn't elect them treasurer again the next year. Do you see? They've broken the trust. Trust is slow to build, easy to damage. 
Uh, you need to be wise in how you treat people. Does forgiveness equal reconciliation? What if the other person is not interested uh, in the relationship anymore? Uh, yes. Romans 12 says, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But Paul doesn't just say, be at peace with everyone. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, Christians should be the ones with the hand of reconciliation held out. If the other person won't take that hand or won't come back, you can't really be reconciled. Do you see? So that's it. Forgive, yes, let it go. Leave it with God. There are consequences. Be wise in how you act when people have damaged trust and be the ones ready to um, uh, make reconciliation. Um, If we are above all the spirits, do we not have the power and authority in Jesus to cast out spirits? Uh, I think we're above all spirits, yes, because we're seated with Jesus. And we're told to pray to him about things. And in the context of spiritual warfare today, we'll see that Paul says not to do exorcisms. He says pray about all things and all times for all the saints and so on. Um, when we go to heaven, uh, will there be free will? And if we can fall, will there be any more salvation? If not, why wasn't Adam created the same way? I uh, can't answer the thing about Adam, but I think what it means to be Christian and what we can look forward to in the new creation is that God will give us his spirit and change our hearts so we will not want to disobey him because obeying him is true freedom. Uh, to think that, oh, well, we have real freedom so we'll be able to disobey God is to actually uh, misunderstand the real nature of freedom. Uh, what does it mean since Jesus has died for our sins, we've been delivered? Um, will we not be punished for sins that we can be committing on a daily basis or even prolonged sin due to unrepentance? If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God will be at work in you, moving you to want to obey Jesus. I think I'd say, if you don't want to obey Jesus, if you have no desire to obey him, you don't have the spirit of God. You're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you want to obey Jesus, there will be a struggle within you, though. You'll never be without sin. Um, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, um, but uh, confess our sins, Jesus will forgive us. Um, so there'll always be that struggle. If you have known Jesus and you continue to sin blatantly, there's a terrible warning in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, right, that says if you continue, after you've known the truth, if you continue to sin, there's no forgiveness. We need to take that seriously. Um, uh, so continued unrepentant sin, stop it. There you go. That's fairly simple. Stop it. Um, I also think there's sins that we'll continue to struggle with. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says, God will use everything uh, for our good to conform us to Christ. And I think in some ways there's an easy way to do that. There's a hard way to do that. If you want to sin, God will make you like Jesus. He's just going to involve pain. All right? He might break your arm to get your attention, something like that. Um, uh, What do you have to say about once saved, always saved? Does that mean that we'll see God in heaven even though we continue to sin every day? Uh, very much the same as the other one. Um, okay.
All right. Ephesians chapter 6. How about we pray that uh, God will help us to understand his word. Lord God, we ask now that you would open our hearts and minds to understand your word and please, through your spirit, give us this understanding. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last night I told you about the young woman that came up and spoke to me after church um, when I was new in this job. Young mum, kind of about 30 with a little kid on her lap, told me her house was haunted. Uh, I told you the story. She said that the two-year-old walked into the garage, spoke in an adult voice, said, don't throw that stuff out. Jack or the granddad's first name would have wanted it and so on. Um, uh, So would I come and pray for her house? Well, uh, I said, okay. So after we finished kind of morning tea, walked out up the road, you know, across the street, walked into the house, met the husband. Um, She said, oh, hi, this is the bishop, da-da-da. You know, he said, "Uh uh-huh, right. And he's just your average Aussie buffhead, you know. Buffhead, do you understand? Um, Average Aussie male. Um, And uh, he's there in his flannelette shirt and his tracky dacks and stuff and boots. And I said, oh, mate, you must think this is really weird, me turning up like this. And he said, no. I said, because he'd seen all this stuff too. He said, no, no, I've seen it. I know it's true. Uh, Incidentally, he'd seen these things thoroughly believed in it and wasn't a Christian. This stuff doesn't make you a Christian, okay? Then I walked around the house, I, I kind of looked at everything so on, and then she opened the bedroom door, and as she opened the bedroom door, I looked in and I saw a little girl's bedroom. And that was it. Now, nothing happened, okay? <laughs> nothing happened at all. Um, every word of that's true. And I, yeah, yeah. Now here's the thing. Why do we feel kind of disappointed? I mean, I, I got to confess, I felt just a little disappointed. I walked in, I've looked around. I prayed with them that God would keep their families safe, that Jesus would remove whatever it is that was troubling them, that they might come to know security in knowing Jesus. And I left. I haven't heard any more of what has happened there other than actually the young woman's not coming to church anymore. I don't know what happened. I still have a mental note. I need to follow her up. Why do you feel a bit disappointed, though, about that story? I'll tell you why. Um, because we like kind of enjoy the spectacular, don't we? All right? And I know I wound you up and so on, but we, we enjoy the spectacular and fascinated about it and so on, and you can see how things kind of get out of hand once you start a little bit of that in a church it's like a fire and it gets bigger and bigger and you can see why it happens in so many churches there's another lady that I that we knew that was part of our church and she was quite literally in terror of the devil and the devil troubled her uh, shook her home made terrible noises about every 15 minutes, depending on which way the wind was blowing. But when you went and looked into it, what was it? This poor lady lived under the flight path to the airport and she was mentally ill. She thought the planes that went over really low were the devil. And this poor lady was terrified. Now, was it the devil? No. Was she mentally ill? Yes. Is that sad? Yes. So you need to be wise about these things. Uh, think, understand. I'm about to say you've got to understand the truth. What are all of these, these stories? Are? We keep, 
with the whole spiritual warfare thing, you keep getting your attention dragged away to the kind of apparently spectacular uh, or the exciting and so on and actually miss where the real work of the devil is and where the real battle is. Do you remember the quote from my friend Peter Bolt? Here we go. What does he say in his, uh, in his book about the victory of Christ over evil? The devil is not only in the dramatic but also operates in the humdrum, mundane, routine features of ordinary life, including things we know as culture. What are the things that take people from God and distract them from his word? Do these not include such things as wealth, marriage and family, business concerns about status in society, uh, sorry, business concerns about status in society, pleasure seeking, education and human wisdom? friends and other social relations, being busy with what to eat, drink and wear, attractive but false teaching that meets our own needs and the like. If so, then here are Satan's, quote, methods and schemes, easy to miss because they are all around us and so much a part of our lives. Uh, do you see? The ordinary. The ordinary. I got a strange letter from a lady who I, I don't know and who I can't find in another town, a, a town that's not even in my region, but she wrote to me. It's a, a letter uh, written in texter, large print, from probably an elderly lady. Here's what it says. Uh, Dear Bishop, would you please pray for protection for myself and my family from all evil, from a bondage problem, from all evils associated with bondage problem for the next 12 months. Thank you, yours sincerely, and then her name. P.S. I am sorry I can only send $50 as my husband's solicitors have stolen all my retirement money and I am living on the pension. What a strange letter. I've tried to find the name uh, in that town. I've gone to the phone book. I've gone to the internet. I can't find it. Why did she send me $50? I, I don't want a $50. I'll put it in a ministry account that I do stuff with for people. But what should I pray for that lady? There's some kind of spiritual thing happening there. I don't know. I'll tell you what I've prayed for her, that God might help her to understand the gospel and that she might be able to put on the full armour of God and to stand and know Jesus. Let's have a look at what that looks like, what she needs to learn, what we need to learn. Let me read to you again from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and that, having done, and that after, having do, sorry, and after you have done everything, to stand. See, that thing, to stand, to stand, to stand. In fact, from verses 10 through to verse 14, he mentions to stand four times. And I wonder if the idea is you don't have to win the war, it's already been won. What you've got to do is stand firm till the Lord returns or till you go to be with him. And put on the full armour. As I said, the word panoply, however it's said, panoply, um, means a Roman soldier's full armour and Paul was probably either being guarded by or chained to Roman soldiers, so it wouldn't have been hard to think about it. Um, 
Each piece of the armour, so truth and righteousness and so on, has already been mentioned in Ephesians. So he's talked about all of these things before. What he does is he kind of ties it all together into this clever metaphor or word picture. Um, and as well as that, every piece of armour except, uh, except one is actually taken from the book of Isaiah. So in the prophecy of Isaiah, as God or his Messiah come to save his people, they're wearing this armour. Okay, and Paul takes that armour that God wears and says, actually, you as believers can wear this same armour. Uh, so, now, the armour is a word picture. Uh, I will try not to get carried away. As I've listened to or read other preachers on this, uh, some of them get really kind of really enthusiastic about the metaphor and make it stretch out and preach eight sermons on this and so on, and I'll just get on with it. Okay, here we go. What does the armour look like? Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt of truth buckled around your waist. Actually, literally what it says is um, your loins girded or girding your loins. What does that mean? Um, in the ancient world when they, they wore robes, long robes, um, you can't walk or run or do anything active with the kind of the, the long frock around your feet and so on. What you've got to do is pull the robes up and put your belt around your waist and so you can then run, move, whatever it is. You literally gird your loins, as it's called. The Lord Jesus says that in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, when he says uh, uh, to his servants, to us, be ready for his return, he says, have your loins girded. I know. Have your, uh, running, your, you know, your running shorts on and your Nikes on, be ready to go. Um, See what he's saying? The first point, the foundation thing, the belt that goes around your waist before any other armour goes on, before anything, your ability to move, to be useful in any way, depends on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now you think, what have we seen this week? What is the great weapon of the devil? The lie. What, is, what does Paul say here? The first, and most, first, first thing? The truth. Get yourself girded around with the truth. In fact, the Lord Jesus says in the same passage in John 8 where Jesus says the devil is the father of lies, Jesus says about the truth, uh, John 8:31. to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What a great person. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The, the devil, you look through the Bible, the devil is anti-word. The devil's always against God's word, against the truth. So in um, the parable of the sower, you know, the, the, the word lands on the hard, or the seed lands on the hard soil. What happens? Satan comes and takes it away. Satan snatches the word away. Or the first thing that Satan does when he turns up in Genesis 3 is to misquote what God has said. Huh? Um, we, uh, Paul warns us in the book of Timothy that the demons or the devil will actually bring false teachers. He says in 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose conscience have been seared, etc. So anti-word and false teaching. So if the devil's weapon is the lie, we need to be people who know the truth. You know, there's some Christians around uh, who seem to think teaching, doctrine, theology is boring. 
Oh, don't, you know, it's, don't bore me with the teaching and the doctrine. It's kind of unspiritual. You know, there's people in our country who want to say, look, I don't want to know about teaching. I'm not a thinking Christian. I just want to sing a Jesus is my boyfriend song 20 times with a chorus that says la, la, la. That's spiritual. I think, hmm. Um, let me show you what real spirituality is, okay? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. What does Paul say? Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now what is the spiritual act of worship? What is it? How do you offer your body as a living sacrifice to God? Verse 2, he says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Everyone wants to be transformed, don't they? How? By the renewing of your mind. Get your brain rewired. Learn to think. Learn to see the world God's way, to think God's thoughts, to understand uh, God's wisdom. Now, here's the thing. By the way, I'm not anti-music at all. I've I've really enjoyed the music uh, this week. It's been great. And do you notice, though, not only is the music good and it's fun and it's emotionally powerful, but it's got content. It's exactly what Paul says um, in Colossians 3, that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, yeah, word of right? as you teach and admonish one another, right? teach and admonish, instruct the word, content, and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. It's learn the truth, speak the truth to each other, even as you sing. Uh, that's why it's so powerful, because it hooks into our emotions. While you've got Ephesians open, let me just show you how... Uh, uh, how Strongly, this theme runs through Ephesians. Have a look. Just turn back, say, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. I'll go through this at 100 miles an hour. If, I, just, if, I, if you get left behind, don't worry. I'll stop again in a second. Have a look. 1, verse um, 13. And you also we were included in Christ when you what? Heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. They hear, they believe, they're marked with the Spirit. Right? There's, there's the truth. Or 1, 17 and 18. What does Paul do? He prays, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, switch your brains on so you can see, so that you may what? Know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. You've got to understand right, the truth. Or um, 2.11, therefore remember that formerly, like, keep your brain switched on, remember. What, what you used to be, or um, 3, 17 and 18. Um, what's he do? He prays um, uh, that they might have the power, verse 18, that you may have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high, and to understand, right, to get your brain working properly. Or 4, 11 and 12. Here's one to look at. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets. You got that 4.11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. What do all those gifts have in common? They're all word gifts. They're all about giving content, teaching truth. What to prepare God's people for works of service so that we can have unity and maturity. And you won't be tossed backwards and forwards by whatever wind of teaching comes along. Or 4.21, surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with, it's about teaching, 4.25, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour. 
And then 5 verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. It's all about the truth, isn't it? What is it? How is it so often that the Lord Jesus introduces a thing that he's teaching to the crowds? Verily, verily, the old translations used to say, Amen, Amen, in the, in the Greek, I tell you the truth, the NIV translates it. Again and again, 11 times in Matthew's Gospel. Now here's the thing, it doesn't just happen by osmosis. I wish that you could just sleep with a, pillow, with a Bible under your pillow and it would all just kind of soak into your head. But <laughs> no, it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, uh, I have a, a, a moderate knowledge of the Bible, moderate compared to giants that I know, but that's from 30 years uh, of, of studying and 25 years of actually working with the Scriptures. H- how's your Bible knowledge going? See, we have, we have a problem, I think, uh, in, in my country anyway, we have what I call 60 to 1 Christians, and that is... There's Christian people who spend 60 times as much time watching television as they do reading, studying the scriptures. 60 times. You think, oh, that couldn't be possible. Yeah, it is. They spend 20 hours a week watching television and 20 minutes a week reading their Bible. 60 times. So what do you think is filling your head? It's not God's truth. Now, I'm not against watching television. Okay, that's fine. But you've got to work and learn and understand the truth. Doctrine teaching, it's all about, it's not just academic, it's actually about knowing God better. Uh, How do we face the father of lies? Know the truth, the belt of truth. I'll give you an example. You work hard at a particular topic in the Bible and the lights begin to go on. Now I hope, uh, you're all very polite Asian people, I'm sure you'll humour me here, I hope this week you've actually learned a little bit about spiritual warfare. Huh? I hope as, that's some heads nodded. That's very kind. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. I hope that you'll go home with, ah, oh, yeah, I get it. I understand more and more now. I, or if, if you don't think I was right, you'll go home motivated to find the truth. But we've worked hard and the lights begin to go on. Ah, oh, I understand. See, it's the truth. And there's so many other things like so many other topics to work hard from the scriptures and understand. Okay, the belt of truth. Next one, verse 14. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. Uh, The breastplate, um, as I understand, is, um, you know, the the armour that covers the main part of the body. There's some debate about whether it covered your back or not, but um, that's just something that people have to fill up commentaries with. Um, What's he saying? It's about the breastplate of righteousness. Now, it could be the righteousness in the sense of justification, the righteousness that God gives us because of Jesus. It could be that. Or it could just mean actually living a righteous way. Living the right way will mean that the devil doesn't get um, traction on you. See, what, what, what cripples your Christian life? Just good old-fashioned, low-level, repetitive, unrepentant sin. That'll cripple your Christian life. It just... You know, what will keep you safe, what will keep you, you know, safe like the breastplate is righteousness. Stop it. Repent of it. Um, there's a clever, clever little part in the screw tape letters. Uh, as I've said before, the screw tape letters, an imaginary conversation that C.S. Lewis wrote between a senior devil and a junior devil about how to um, uh, ruin the Christian life of their, of their subject. Let me read you what he says about about sin and little sins ruining someone's Christian life. He says, 
uh, the senior devil says to the junior one, you will say that these are very small sins and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, the enemy being God, of course. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Little, regular, unrepentant sins that push you away from walking with the Lord. You get it, don't you? Repent, repent. Verse 15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. As I read the commentaries, they talk about the, the shoes that the Roman soldiers wore, kind of a half boot made of leather. Here's a couple of pictures of them uh, or of um, uh, you know, recreations of them. Uh, what they were, a light, a light leather sandal with actually kind of like um, cleats on the bottom, a little bit like football boots. And the idea was they were light and you could march and run and so on, but you could stand firm as well. Um, now, what does he say? He says, the feet um, fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So if you, if you have the gospel of peace, you have these feet that are ready. Um, there's you kind of, you think, ah, feet, the gospel, peace. Did you ever have that chorus? How lovely on the mountains are... Do you know that one? Yeah, I know, it's so 1970s, isn't it? Anyway, okay. Um, you probably didn't recognise it. As I was, We'll get Edwin to sing it later. Um, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. I'm sure that Paul had that, not that song, but that verse in his mind when, uh, when he wrote this. I'll show you. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And in the context, God's saying, look, you've been in exile and I've punished you, but the good news is I will come and rescue you. And he's saying the one who brings that good news of God coming to save you, those people have beautiful feet. What's he saying? I think he's saying once you understand the gospel of peace, your feet are ready, you will have... Uh, a mobility, a lightness of step. I wonder if he means you'll actually be able to stand a little bit easy to the things of this world and not be weighed down. There'll be a lightness of how you travel. Um, there'll be an urgency about how you walk. Uh, two of my friends, uh, or Kathy and I, our friends, uh, they're just turned 40 or so, They've got three little kids or three young kids and in a couple of weeks' time they're going to sell all their furniture, uh, basically all their possessions except their clothes. They'll throw the kids and their clothes in their car and they will drive from Sydney down to Melbourne to start missionary training. At the moment he works as a minister in a church in Sydney in a quite well-to-do area and they're about to walk away from all that, sell their furniture, sell everything, clothes and kids... Melbourne and then probably go to Africa for mission work think whoa why can they do that it's because they travel light 
It's because their treasure is in heaven, not in Ikea. They can travel light. A readiness that comes from the gospel. And there's a sense of urgency. Now, can you travel light? Can you stand just a little removed from your possessions, from all those things that clutter up life? Do you have a sense of urgency about the gospel? Can you, can you move with that? Because I want to ask you, do you have a sense of urgency about taking the gospel to Singapore? I mean, who's going to do it if it's not ARPC? Do you, do you feel it, that sense of urgency? That's what Paul's saying, grab hold of it, the gospel of peace. And then verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Uh, the word shield there, it's not one of those little um, dinner plate shields like they use in all the gladiator movies. This is one of those big square, um, kind of like a, you're kind of carrying around a door with a handle on it. It's that kind of, um, that kind of size and shape. And... Um, uh, the way they do it is, is to lock them together uh, and keep you safe from arrows and so on. And in the ancient world, that they'd worked out that one side or the side in a, within the castle or the fort or whatever would shoot arrows that were dipped in pitch and on fire into the attacking forces. Um, and they'd say that, uh, you know, in the commentaries they say, oh, um, being shot with an arrow on fire would create panic in the uh, attacking force. I think, yeah, I reckon if there's an arrow sticking out of me, that's a problem. And then if it's on fire, that's more of a problem. Okay, so yeah. Now, what does he say? The flaming arrows of the evil one, or literally the fiery darts of the evil one. Uh, what they worked out, uh, the Romans worked out, was to cover their shields with um, leather and then wet the leather. So you could actually extinguish the, um, the flaming darts with shields that were soaked in water. What's he saying? It's the shield of faith. I think what he means is learning to trust God. And it's a shield that you get behind. And um, he's saying there are things that will hurt and there are things that are coming and if, you haven't got, if you're not solid in faith, you're going to get yourself in trouble. It's going to hurt and it's going to burn and it's... Um, what will happen? Well, things I've, we've talked about this week. What happens when uh, you get sick or someone you love gets sick, or worse, perhaps, worst of all, it's your kids, or what happens when you lose your job, or what happens, you know, if your parents are driving you mad, or there's all sorts of things that can happen in life, isn't there? Difficulties, suffering. When that comes, it's, you know, need faith. You need to trust God. He's saying, get hold of that like a shield. Take the helmet of salvation. Uh, it's actually literally the helmet which is salvation. And I think what he means is the fact that you're already saved, the fact that you know you're there with Jesus, that will help keep you going. And then he comes to the only piece of um, offensive armour or off an offensive weapon and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Um, notice he's kind of like the bookends. You start with truth and finish with the word of God. They're kind of the, the bookends or the, the beginning and the end of the armour. Um, learn the Bible. Learn the Bible. Uh, I know it's a cliche, you know, for the preacher to say learn the Bible. Back home, you know what I noticed? We've got people who work and really high level jobs. Stuff that's really, you know, high intelligence, high training, high education and so on. Operating really high. And yet in their Christian life, they're still babies. 
They were giant brains and huge abilities and they've never applied that to understanding the scriptures. You need to know your Bible. Why? To be able to get on the front foot, to know how to answer questions, to know how to answer the temptations that will come. Just really quickly, turn over to Matthew chapter 4 and we see the example of Jesus. Now I've been telling you all week, you can't just say because Jesus did such and such, therefore we should do such and such. So you weigh up whether I'm right or not here. Matthew chapter 4, you've got the example though of how does Jesus answer the temptation of the devil? Uh, Jesus has just been baptised. The Spirit of God descends and says, This is my Son whom I love. Then chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. But you notice, Jesus is in the desert 40. When's that happened before? Israel was in the desert 40 years. Okay, Jesus is in the desert now 40 days. And then the temptation comes to him. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, it's not so much, the question is not so much, prove to me that you're the Son of God. The voice from heaven has just said that at the end of chapter 3. It's much more the idea of what are the implications of, the son, of his sonship. Is Jesus going to be the son who serves himself and uses his power to look after himself or is he going to be the one who serves others and sacrifices himself? So the temptation here is to use his power to create bread. Now look how Jesus answers. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is a quote from, you look down the footnote, Deuteronomy. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 8. For all three temptations that the devil brings him, Jesus answers from Deuteronomy chapter 6 to 8. You think, yeah, and why is that? So the answer. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 through to 8, God is explaining why he put Israel in the desert for 40 years during the Exodus. Answer, to teach them humility, to teach them to trust him. I'll show you. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you. This is just before they go into the promised land, right? To humble you and to test you in order that you may know, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. All right? And Jesus has learned the lesson of humility. Interesting how humility and the devil, pride, humility and the devil keep being associated. And what happens? The devil comes to Jesus and out comes the sword, razor sharp with the right answer. Um, If your survival depended on being able to quote exact verses from Deuteronomy, how do you reckon you'd go? Mm, We need to work at it, don't we? need to work at it we need the sword to defend ourselves and the sword will be sharp and back to Ephesians the sword is sharp sharp on different issues sharp on you know Christ is the only way to God sharp on hell is real sharp on sexual behavior matters and you take those edges off and all of a sudden you've got a blunt sword which isn't a sword at all 
need to be able to use the sword against the devil and temptation and false teachers and so on. Okay, there's the armour. When's the time to put this on? Well, before all of these attacks come. Before all of the attacks come. Last night I just went through six kind of just general all-purpose temptations that are, you know, almost everywhere. Fighting and arguing, anger, temptation of sexual sin, romantic involvement with an unbeliever, greed, pornography. And here's, and, and here's the thing. Why does it matter? They're so emotionally powerful when they arrive and they get hold of us. And if you haven't worked out the truth and what the scriptures say and how you'll respond, you, you'll lose. That, that's the point. Well, I need to rush on. Um, verse 18. The next thing we're told, though, is pray. So put the armour on and then pray. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. In the context of, uh, in the context of, of um, struggle with the devil and the spiritual forces, what does Paul say? Put the armour on and pray. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Pray. Uh, and there's four alls in there. Uh, pray at all times, with all prayer and supplication. I think it means lots of different forms, like thanksgiving and praise and requests and so on. All times, prayer for all, um, sorry, all prayer and supplication, all perseverance and all the saints. And to pray in the Spirit, I think he means that the Spirit of God helps us to pray. Romans 8 says, when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit of God helps us, intercedes for us. And here's the irony, uh, as one guy I read said, the Christian soldier fights on his or her knees. You pray. So be alert, pray for fellow believers, pray that God will give others the spiritual armour as well, and then Paul asks that they pray for him. Pray for me also, that whenever, my, whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Interesting, twice he asks him that he'd be fearless. Please pray that I'll be fearless. When do you pray that you'd be made to be fearless? When you're afraid. Even the Apostle Paul was afraid. It didn't stop him. He just, it's, it's okay to be afraid. Yep, harden up, keep going. Uh, and he prays for opportunities that he know what to say and how to say it. God, gifts, God gives different people different gifts. God wires us up differently. Some of us are great evangelists. Uh, um, uh, others of us, you know, it, it's, it's harder. We struggle. For me, I'm not a great one-to-one -one evangelist. I, I'm not sure. Um, what I love is a couple of hundred Aussie blokes in, um, how do you say, RSL club? Do you guys know what an RSL um, license is? In a pub. Fill up a pub with blokes and talk to them about Jesus. I love it. There must be something a little psychologically wrong with me, but that's what I love. One-to-one um, -one is much harder for me. Now, God will have wired you up different ways. What Paul's saying is pray that we make the most of every opportunity to be able to speak fearlessly and, and do what you're able. Do what you're able. Okay, well, there you are. See, spiritual warfare, what's he saying? Um, you know what it seems like, doesn't it? It seems like spiritual warfare is really just grabbing hold of the gospel and putting the gospel on, like the word and living right and faith and knowing you're saved and learn the Bible. And, and you know what? That's it. 
you've got it. You say, it's just the gospel. Yes, that's right. It's all there is and it's all you need. It's take the gospel and, and make it part of you and it'll make you strong. I've been thinking as, um, as I, I finish up, um, there are a number of older Christian people that I know, people who are 20 years older than me or more that I've known for a long time and it's interesting to watch someone who's walked with the Lord for a long time as, as physically they begin to wane and physically they're not as strong as they were and they may even become frail you can see the result of years and years of actually um, wearing the armour of the gospel right? of, um, uh, of having the belt of truth and of, of the breastplate of righteousness and of the helmet of salvation and, and carrying the sword and so on and so you see these people that even as they begin to be frail they are strong not strong in themselves but as he says earlier back um, in verse 10 strong in the Lord you can see the armour actually work. So what I encourage you to do, um, be strong in the Lord. Trust him. Get busy. Put the armour on. Pick up your sword. And let's join the battle. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we ask please that we may all come to wear this armour to make the gospel part of us. We ask, please, that we might all come to know and love the Lord Jesus and the forgiveness that he won at such great cost. We pray, please, you give us an urgency about the gospel, feet that are ready with the gospel of peace. We ask, please, that we may live lives that bring glory to our Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.